The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. I'm Emily Day, and this is an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 2nd, 2021. This past Wednesday, the United States and European Union held the inaugural meeting of the US-EU Trade Technology Council to discuss several major economic and technological challenges. But the meeting was nearly derailed by the US decision to withdraw from Afghanistan without consulting European allies in the recent AUKUS deal. For today's episode, I chose a conversation between Shannon Tagawa-Mercer, Benjamin Wittes, and David O'Sullivan, the former EU ambassador to the US, about the evolving relations between the US and EU. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 9th, 2018. It's easy to spend all our time focusing on American domestic politics these days, but the rest of the world is not going away. The European Union, for example, our neighbors from across the pond, and one of the U.S.'s most valuable economic and security relationships— There's a lot going on over there, and some of it even involves us. How is that relationship faring in the age of tariffs, presidential bluster, Brexit, and tensions over Iran sanctions? To figure that out, Shannon Tagawa-Mercer and I spoke to David O'Sullivan, the EU ambassador to the United States. We talked about the U.S.-EU trade relationship. We spoke about Iran and Russia sanctions. We spoke about Privacy Shield. We spoke about the rule of law in deconsolidating democracies in the EU. And we talked about a lot more, too. By the way, the EU delegation to the U.S. has its own podcast series called EU Now, which you should check out if any of these issues are of interest to you. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 354, Ambassador David O'Sullivan on the U.S.-EU relationship. Ambassador, in recent days, National Security Advisor John Bolton has used some strong language to describe or to uh, speak sort of about the EU, especially in the context of the recent EU-US divergence on Iran policy. Um, I'd like to get your perspective on that rift, the growing chasm between our two countries. Well, I, it is true that on the issue of Iran, we disagree. Uh, uh, you know our position. Uh, we continue to believe that the nuclear deal is absolutely vital for, I would say, European, but even we would say global security. 
Uh, and we, notwithstanding the U.S. decision to withdraw from the deal, we believe that it should be preserved. So on this, I'm afraid we are, uh, for the moment, uh, at diametrically opposed views. Uh, but I don't think this is part of a broader transatlantic rift. I mean, I still think that we agree on many more issues than we disagree. Uh, and uh, I think talk of a, of a sort of fundamental rift is, is misplaced. We are clearly living through some difficult moments globally, uh, and there are tensions in the system. But uh, I still believe that the United States and the European Union uh, on a daily basis have many things more in common than that which separates us. And can you speak to some of that convergence? What does your office deal with on a daily basis? Well, I mean, we we deal with a a very wide range of issues. I mean, obviously, uh, sticking for a moment with the foreign policy issues. I mean, we we have very similar views uh, uh, about uh, counterterrorism, about uh, the the situation, the need to find a solution to the situation in in Syria. Uh, We take similar views on on Afghanistan. uh, And of course, we are are concerned uh, about the situation situation, uh, the emergence of, of China, both as a, as a political and, and an economic actor. Um, we cooperate, of course, on a wide range of areas, whether this is research and development, uh, uh, cooperation on science and technology. Uh, and of course, our economic cooperation is absolutely huge. The transatlantic uh, economic corridor is the single most important corridor in the world, bar none. We each do more business and investment with each other than either of us do with any other uh, partner globally. And this is a hugely important aspect of, of our relationship. Uh, then there are other areas, of course, in, in which we, we, we cooperate and discuss whether this is in the United Nations or whether this is uh, in other international fora. So uh, there's a, a very strong tissue of connectivity uh, between the United States and the European Union, which uh, continues uh, on a daily basis. One of the um, recent, let's say, ostensibly positive notes in that relationship was the July handshake agreement between European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker and and President Trump to come to a trade agreement eventually. But I I haven't seen much development in that particular area, save for constant talk about about tariff threats. What's, What's the status of those negotiations and how is your office looking at them? Well, I think the meeting between President Juncker and President Trump on the 25th of July in Washington was an important turning point. I think we managed to take what was a potentially sort of negative uh, um, interaction and turn it into a positive. Uh, The statement which we agreed contains four pillars uh, of future work, uh, the possibility of concluding uh, an industrial uh, free trade agreement, a free trade agreement on industrial products, Uh, secondly, addressing uh, issues of regulatory uh, convergence and cooperation where we can reduce the costs of doing business across the Atlantic, looking at a couple of specific issues such as uh, increased exports of LNG uh, from the United States to Europe, increased exports of of soya beans, which have actually increased uh, hugely uh, in recent months, and fourthly, cooperation on reform of the WTO. So, uh, you know, you say you haven't noticed much happening. Sometimes trade negotiations is a bit like watching paint dry. Uh, mm-hmm. Nothing happens for a long time until suddenly there's an agreement. There have been a very good meeting uh, between uh, Cecilia Malmström and Bob Lighthizer in Brussels uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Uh, there's a big group uh, of trade negotiators coming from the European Union at the end of October here to Washington to continue those talks. And Cecilia Malmström and Bob Lighthizer have agreed to meet again at the end of November. So we're, we're taking forward uh, all those four pillars of that agreement reached 
reached uh, in July. So can I ask a question about that? I, I mean, there's this oddity of uh, President Trump, which I'm not asking you to comment on, in which, you know, on the one hand, he uh, rails against free trade agreements. And on the other hand, as happened with uh, Mexico and Canada the other day, he sort of pursues them. Um, and, you know, he talks about EU countries and the EU as a whole as entities that take advantage of America and that, you know, cheat and do all kinds of terrible things. And then on the other hand, uh, you just describing a fairly positive uh, set of uh, trade negotiations that are ongoing and that you sound uh, at least mildly optimistic about. And so I'm just interested in your squaring that circle a little bit. Well, I think what we uh, have is is President Trump, the negotiator, the art of the deal. Uh, uh, I think he does not disguise the fact that he uses techniques in in negotiation which are designed to sort of destabilize the 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 the, the person he's negotiating with. So it's always a mixture, as by the way, which is a classic technique of an element of threat, an element of bluster, and an element of willingness to compromise. And I think this is what we've seen, for example, with the recent deal uh, on. The, the U.S. MCA, as we now call it, uh, NAFTA. That once some was. of us in still insist on calling it NAFTA too. Right. Um, but uh, so I, I think we have seen this this same tactic at work, which where the president feels makes very critical statements, but then instructs uh, Ambassador Lighthizer to to try to find a way forward. Uh, we don't agree with many of the the criticisms that the president makes about uh, the trading situation between the European Union and the United States. We think it's a fair and balanced relationship. Uh, But having said that, uh, to the extent that uh, the United States wants to have a second look at some of those issues and talk about ways in which we can improve the situation, we're absolutely willing to do that. And that's what President Juncker and President Trump agreed. Now, if I were a European Union official or a member state official, I would be concerned about the impact of those statements on my own domestic politics and the constraints that my own populations would put on me in the form of reaction to those statements. I'm curious how domestic U.S. politics are conditioning domestic EU politics so as to constrain or enable EU negotiators in their interactions with the United States. Well, I, I think the first element is that the, the media market is global. So uh, there is no such thing as something which is exclusively for domestic consumption anymore. I think there was a time when politicians could say one thing at home and another thing abroad and hope that people would not necessarily spot any contradictions. Uh, now, whatever you say uh, is reported instantly and in real time internationally. So it's true that anything that the president says here about the European Union gets reported back, produces a reaction, uh, uh, just as anything that people in, in Europe will say about uh, the, the United States uh, gets picked up here very quickly. So that's that's the world in which we live. But I think uh, people are also capable of making a distinction between declarations which are largely of political intent versus what actually happens uh, when, when you sit down at, at the negotiating table. Uh, and that's, I think, the situation in which we find ourselves. We, we disagree with many of the things the president has said. We don't think 
for example, that uh, the existence of a, of a trade deficit in goods uh, is in any way illustrative of unfair trading practices. In fact, we would argue that the trading and investment relationship is broadly balanced. Yes, we have a surplus in 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 we have a surplus in goods. You have a surplus in in uh, services. And if you look at the profits uh, uh, earned by American companies investing in Europe versus the profits of European companies invested here, you also have a surplus. And those three things together add up to zero, pretty much, which shows that the relationship is actually a fair and balanced one. But we understand that the president uh, doesn't share that view and feels that we need to take a second look at some of those issues. And we're certainly willing to sit down and see if we can find a way forward. The point you make, Ben, however, is, of course, important that the end of the day, trade deals have to be acceptable to both sides. Just as you have to sell it here to your domestic constituency, and in particular, of course, to Congress, who have to approve such a deal, equally, we in Europe have to sell it to our domestic constituency, and we have to get it approved uh, by the member states and by the directly elected members of the European Parliament. So we have to be sure that any trade deal really is a win-win in the truest sense of that term. I have a few questions on the trade front, but before that, I want to flip Ben's original question on its head and ask ask about how domestic EU politics are influencing your relationship or the EU government's relationship with the U.S. So as we've seen, I mean, famously, Brexit is sort of the, the main example of this, but there's been a resurgence of, of domestic populism in a number of different EU countries. And is that creating sort of any, any difficulties in EU, EU-U.S. relations or more synergies? No, I wouldn't say. I mean, obviously, domestic politics is is hugely important. Tip O'Neill said uh, all politics is local. And uh, it is true that the the domestic uh, context, uh, both in terms of what is happening within our member states and how that plays out uh, at the the level of European institution uh, decision making, uh, is is ultimately what determines what is possible. Uh, And uh, you rightly say that there has been uh, a certain shift in uh, European politics. Uh, the established parties in many member states uh, are struggling uh, and are being threatened or challenged by new and uh, more insurgent parties, sometimes with, with very different uh, views to those traditionally held. And this is a, a political reality that we're having to deal with. Uh, it's, by the way, I think the two phenomena in 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 some respects uh, though different are similar across the the atlantic between what's happening here and and what's happening in europe but i mean the one thing i would say is that when i I'm, when i'm in europe and when i talk to our member states uh, the importance of the transatlantic relationship still is very much on people's minds. That's not to say that they agree with everything or that they will agree to whatever uh, the United States wants to propose. But I think people are very committed to the importance of this relationship, both economically and commercially, from a security perspective, but also from the values that we share uh, when you look at the the broader uh, global uh, situation and including the the, the values of, of, of others or the ways in which those values are not shared by others. So, I, I, I mean, my basic point is still the same one in answer to your first question. Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there are difficulties. Uh, but we remain very committed to the fact that this is a hugely important relationship for us. And we would like to think it's an important relationship for you. And back to some of the trade issues that we were discussing immediately before the discussion of, of broader transatlantic issues. You mentioned that the EU and the U.S., share similar views on global trends. So one of them was China as a rising economic and political power. Um, But there have been, I I think, 
at least within the trade world, there's been significant discussion about how U.S. unilateral action is, is weakened um, or less effective than it could be if it had partnership from, let's say, the EU. What are the convergences and divergences in EU-U.S.-China policy right now? Well, I think uh, we broadly share the same analysis of uh, the economic relationship with China. Uh, if you look at the uh, European uh, Chamber uh, in Beijing produces an annual report on doing business in China. Uh, and you look at the US chamber in Beijing, which produces pretty much the same kind of report. These identify all the same problems. I think there is almost no difference between the two analyses of what is wrong with the Chinese system from the point of view of um, foreign businesses or the trading relationship and in particular the investment relationship, whether this is the role of state-owned enterprises, uh, the overinvestment by government in steel and aluminium, which has produced a huge glut and dumping of steel and aluminium on the global market, which uh, has been to the detriment of both the Europeans and the Americans, uh, the compulsory acquisition of IP, uh, uh, the limits, the restrictions on the ability of foreign companies to uh, purchase uh, outright Chinese companies. These are all common challenges. And we believe we should be working together, including with other like-minded partners such as Japan, uh, to combat these. Uh, where we disagree with the United States is, as you say, uh, the use of unilateral, uh, non-WTO compatible uh, measures, which we think ultimately uh, is not the best way to go forward. And that's uh, a view we've, we've expressed quite strongly to the administration. And similarly, the EU has been working to propose feasible amendments to or improvements to the WTO. And it seems that the U.S. is a little bit less amenable to um, dedicating resources to reforming the system as it exists now, as opposed to unilateral action. And how does your office work with the U.S. government on that front? Well, this was the fourth pillar of the July 25 statement agreed by President Trump and President Juncker, that we would work together uh, to improve the functioning of the WTO. We have recently produced, I think, quite a comprehensive uh, proposal for how the WTO uh, could be brought better into the 21st century. And to be very frank, the, how WTO rules could better capture some of the practices uh, used by China, which are not, in our view, compatible with the good functioning of the global trade and investment uh, environment. Uh, and we, I, I don't, we have, this is now being studied by the US side, but we hope that this is a basis which the US and other like-minded partners uh, in the WTO can rally around because we believe ultimately the success of the multilateral trading system and a rules-based multilateral trading system is the best way forward for all of us. Uh, and of course, uh, unilateral action is not compatible with that. And the problem with unilateral action, which is always the same problem, is one side can take it, then can another side. And then you go into a, a downward spiral of the kind we have seen in the 1930s, which we absolutely believe would not be in anyone's interest to repeat. So um, to pivot a bit to, um, I think, what is often the elephant in the room in these conversations, um, the first time I saw you speak, Ambassador, was at Georgetown Law a few years ago when you were talking about the um, as of yet unknown consequences of Brexit. Um, given that we have some real benchmark dates coming up in Brexit negotiations, specifically this fall, there will be further discussions about a deal. And then in March, that's sort of the, the ultimate divorce date. How do you see negotiations progressing? What are you hopeful about and what are you worried about? 
Well, I think it's important to understand that the Brexit negotiations basically have two chapters to them. Uh, The first is the withdrawal agreement, which is the legal basis on which the United Kingdom will withdraw from the European Union uh, at midnight uh, Central European time on uh, March 29th. Uh, And this agreement uh, has to cover a number of issues, but the three most important issues uh, are firstly the financial settlement, uh, how the United Kingdom will address the financial commitments it has taken going forward after they have left, the situation relating to uh, European citizens living in the United Kingdom uh, and what their rights and entitlements will be in the future, and the the equally important issue of the position of British citizens living elsewhere uh, in the European Union. And the third issue is the vexed issue of the Irish border. Now, uh, this agreement is, I would say, you know, 80 to 85 percent done. We have, I think, found solutions to the first, to the financial issue, and we have found uh, solutions to the uh, citizens issue. There are still one or two other issues to be decided about the governance of the agreement, including the precise role of the European Court of Justice. But I I think everyone agrees that we are likely to find agreement on that. What is holding up the agreement uh, being finalized is the issue of the Irish border. And I'll I'll come back to that in just a moment. But that then takes me to the second chapter because it's it's linked. The, the question of the future arrangements between the United Kingdom once it has left the European Union and the EU 27. What will be the nature of that relationship? Uh, this is not going to be settled by the end of March. Uh, there will not even be a legal text agreed on this. Everyone agrees that there will be a political declaration setting out the the parameters of the future negotiations which will take place once the UK leaves. But of course, that will determine the trading relationship. And in turn, that will have an impact on what kind of border may be needed between uh, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, because that will be the only land border between the EU 27 and the United Kingdom. And therein lies the dilemma of finalizing the withdrawal agreement. Uh, Everyone agrees that it would be absolutely Uh, tragic to reinstate uh, some kind of hard border uh, on the island of Ireland. The Good Friday Agreement of 1998 uh, was a breakthrough agreement settling, uh, you know, many issues of difficulty in Northern Ireland, but it was predicated on the assumption of joint membership of the European Union. This meant that the unionist community in Northern Ireland were given a constitutional guarantee that there would be no change in the status of Northern Ireland as an integral part of the United Kingdom without the consent of the majority of people in Northern Ireland. And this was a very important guarantee. But equally, joint membership of the European Union squared the circle for the nationalist community because they were told, okay, Northern Ireland is going to remain a part of the United Kingdom, but since both Ireland and the UK are members of the European Union, on a practical day-to-day basis, uh, it's as if the island of Ireland was one place. There is free movement of goods, services, capital, people. Uh, There's no border. There are no checks. You can live in the north, work in the south, live in the south, uh, uh, work in the north. Goods can flow freely. There's no policing. There's no customs control on the border. So the border effectively disappeared. 
the challenge now is not to have to reinstate that border if the United Kingdom and the European Union do not have the same trade uh, regime, do not have the same customs regime, do not have the same standards regime for uh, goods and uh, p- particularly for goods. And this is what we're struggling to find a solution to. Um, the Commission has proposed that it, there is agreement that there needs to be what is called a backstop in the withdrawal agreement. And let me just explain that for, for one minute. Mm-hmm. Um, we all hope that whatever the future trading arrangement between the United Kingdom and the EU27 is, it will be able to obviate the need for any border. But frankly, that's not self-evident. And it could be that you would end up with an outcome which might still require some checks at the frontier on goods, uh, particularly uh, if there's a different customs regime or if the standards uh, are not harmonized. In order to make sure that even if there were to be some divergence which might necessitate uh, checks at the border, in order to make sure that in that circumstance there will be no physical border put on the island of Ireland, the Commission has proposed that you could make a special case for Northern Ireland, uh, treat it uh, slightly differently from the rest of the United Kingdom, uh, and put such checks as might be needed in the ports and the airports, so at places where there is naturally anyway some degree of control and verification about goods and services, and that you would not need them on the border. I think this is a very pragmatic way forward. I understand that this poses sensitivities uh, for people in Northern Ireland and for certain people in the UK who may feel that somehow this is dividing the UK. I think what we're trying to find uh, in the coming weeks is a formula which, as as Michel Barnier has said, de-dramatizes this, makes these into administrative and functional checks uh, on goods traveling between Northern Ireland and the UK and vice versa, uh, in a way that does not put into question at all the constitutional position of Northern Ireland as an integral part of the UK. And that's, uh, you know, my guess is, but I may be wrong, that some kind of formula will be found, that we will be able to agree uh, on the withdrawal agreement, and that withdrawal agreement will have annexed to it uh, a commitment to seek the closest possible relationship between uh, the United Kingdom and the European Union at 27 going forward. Exactly what that will look like, however, will be left to future negotiations. So I'm, I'm interested in your sense of it as this is the major sticking point as opposed to, you know, free movement of peoples and the European court. Are you really so optimistic that if the Ireland question can be resolved, everything else falls into place? Uh, Or is this merely the most prominent sticking point? And if you resolve this, uh, then other things come to the fore. I think it's I go back to my description of what we're doing. There are two chapters. The Northern Irish border is the sticking point to concluding the withdrawal agreement. But that is only one chapter. The next chapter, which is the future relationship, where exactly the points you make, the the, the, the freedom of movement of people, freedom of movement of goods, services, uh, the role of the court, and so on, they will all have to be rediscussed in the context of the future relationship. But for the purposes of agreeing an exit treaty, the main sticking point is finding a mutually acceptable way of framing this backstop of how to make sure if 
there is no other solution. And I emphasize, if there's no other solution, how to make sure that we do not see a return to a hard border in Ireland. That is the, that's the, the, the bit of the withdrawal treaty that remains to be finished. But you're right, uh, this will not. And that's why I think it's very important for your listeners to understand that this is a two-step process. The first is to agree the withdrawal agreement. That will trigger, once the UK leaves, a negotiation on the future relationship. And I should have mentioned, because it's important, that there is, I think, an understanding that there will be a transition period of 21 months uh, after the withdrawal in which nothing will change. Uh, It will be the status quo, essentially, while we try to negotiate the future relationship. And indeed, those vexed issues that you've mentioned will unfortunately still have to be uh, worked through and solutions found. And that's not going to be simple by any means. These problems strike me as uniquely complex in that they're both intimate and domestic and yet globally important. How involved, if at all, is the U.S. in helping to find reasonable solutions? Well, I think the U.S. has made clear that, you know, uh, like, like the rest of us, they acknowledge and, and accept the decision of the British people to leave the European Union. They, I think their, their admonition to both sides is very simple. Uh, try to limit the damage. Try to make this as smooth a process as possible, particularly uh, for European companies invested uh, in the UK or elsewhere in the EU. Uh, but they are not actively involved in the discussions. I'm afraid this is a, an issue which we as Europeans have to find a solution for, and we are working very hard at doing that. Speaking of a particular relationship Um, that the U.S. is intimately invested in. Um, The EU-U.S. Privacy Shield, which is a framework for commercial transatlantic data flows that's designed to ensure that there's adequate data protection for EU data subjects, um, is a a point of contention between the EU and the U.S. and is also coming up for review this month. In July, the European Parliament passed a non-binding resolution encouraging the EC to suspend the EU-US Privacy Shield unless the US is fully compliant with their wishes by, or was fully compliant with their wishes by September 1st. Um, This essentially, the approach to this review has not gone without controversy. Most recently on October 3rd, the US ambassador to the EU said that the US is abiding by the EU data protection rules, but that assertion isn't definitive or dispositive. Um, Ambassador, could you tell us what your biggest concerns are leading um, leading up to the review this month? Well, I think these periodic reviews are a very important part of the privacy shield. But let's go back to first principles. I mean, the the flow of data between our two economies is hugely important uh, for for both of us, uh, for your companies, for our companies. Uh, And we have every interest in making sure that this takes place in, in the best possible conditions. That is why when the European Court of Justice struck down the previous safe harbor arrangement, we, we moved very quickly on both sides to negotiate a, a new arrangement which took fully into account the, the, the criticisms made by the court of the original safe harbor. By the way, we were already working on a new version of safe harbor and we had already uh, sort of taken on board a number of the things which the court uh, finally put into its, its decision. But a key element of Privacy Shield and and a big difference with the Safe Harbor is that it is a dynamic agreement and not a static agreement. The Safe Harbor was very much a static agreement which was done once uh, and which was left alone then for many years. And I think it probably lasted for longer than many people who originally were involved in its conception thought might be the case. 
Uh, but as as always happens, events and and technological changes and other factors overtook uh, the terms of that agreement. One of the important elements of the Privacy Shield is that we have the ability every year to review it and to tweak it and to take account of of new developments. Uh, and that's why these meetings are are hugely important. The Commission uh, issued a number of recommendations uh, earlier in the summer as to how we felt uh, some of the challenges in implementing this agreement needed to be implemented, particularly by the U.S. side. The U.S. side has moved to address a number of those uh, issues, particularly about compliance and enforcement, uh, which is a positive development. Uh, it also takes into account some of the points made by the European Parliament. Uh, we have at least one issue where we, we still are not completely happy, and this is the fact that we don't yet have a permanent uh, appointment uh, to the post of uh, ombudsman, which was a post uh, created in the State Department to be a sort of point of review for uh, citizens seeking redress. There is an acting uh, uh, ombudsperson, and I mean, I, I, we understand that they, of course, are fully empowered to do their job. But I think symbolically, uh, it would be hugely important uh, to see progress on this. And we do understand that the U.S. administration is working on that. So I think it's, 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 it's important to have these periodic discussions to address uh, issues and challenges which come up in the course of implementing this important deal. But we remain very committed on the European side to making this privacy shield work in the best interests of uh, our companies and of U.S. companies. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. So what does that mean if by the date of review, the U.S. hasn't, let's say, substantially, sufficiently or adequately complied with the EU's previous requirements? So we, we know that they haven't you know, necessarily met all of, the, all of the sort of expectations for full enforcement. You're, you mentioned the ombudsman is not a permanent appointment. Um, what happens if the review goes poorly? Well, I don't think that we anticipate that it will go per poorly. Uh, we have looked closely at the recommendations which we made in the summer and the steps which have been taken by the United States, and we're quite impressed by, by what has been done. So we think uh, the U.S. is certainly operating in good faith. Um, as I say, I think perhaps the, the issue that is most visibly pending is the question of the, ombuds per, the ombudsman. 
we understand. I mean, this is not particular to this question. There are a number of unfilled vacancies in the U.S. administration, which are slowly now being filled. Progress has been made. Uh, and uh, we hope that there will also be progress on this issue very shortly. But I, I don't think that we are looking at any dramatic conclusions out of the review. Uh, we believe this is an ongoing process of dialogue and discussion to make this privacy shield work in the best way possible in the interests of both sides. As the ambassador to the United States over the, over the course of data privacy negotiations for years, what role have you played and how has your role changed? Well, it's always a classic uh, ambassadorial role. It's it's my job on the one hand here to make known to the American authorities our concerns, to explain the constraints on the European side and what we would like to see uh, changed, uh, and at the same time to report back to Brussels uh, what is the mood here in the United States, what are the constraints in the US system, uh, to try and explain what might be possible, uh, what might not be possible, uh, and to contribute to building a bridge between the, the two parties. But of course, at the end of the day, it is the negotiations between uh, Commissioner Yarova and Secretary Ross who ultimately decide uh, what, it, what, gets, what gets agreed. But uh, we've been very active here in the delegation in, in trying to explain as clearly as we can the European perspective on these issues. Uh, and I had a lot of work to do. I, I found myself in Silicon Valley two days after the European Court of Justice had struck down the Safe Harbor Agreement. I can assure you I was okay. not the most popular speaker on stage uh, at that moment. Uh, so I, I bear the scars of, of explaining uh, to the US uh, the European perspective on this. But we also play a very important role in explaining back to the, to the Europeans uh, some of the realities and the constraints which exist in this country. And I honestly believe there is not so much which separates us fundamentally. The notion that, you know, you're from Mars and we're from, we're from Venus when it comes to privacy and security, I, I don't fully buy. I think on both sides of the Atlantic, our citizens want guarantees about privacy and they want guarantees about security. Uh, and it's, it's delivering both those in the most effective way possible, which is the responsibility of government on both sides of the Atlantic. You are, as you say, unusually situated in this discussion and that you spend a lot of time trying to explain each side to the other. How would you describe the, I think of it as primarily a cultural difference about data protection and privacy. Uh, it's a cultural difference that produces significant legal distinct differences. But how, how would you describe if it's not Mars and Venus, it's it's something. There is a palpable difference between Silicon Valley and Brussels, and there's a palpable difference between the way European government officials and U.S. government officials talk about privacy and data protection versus not merely security, but also you know, economic growth and uh, and innovation, and I'm I'm just interested in your thoughts on where those differences come from and what uh, what constitute them. Well, I think uh, you're right. There are there are cultural differences. I, I think that the biggest cultural difference, to be very frank, is the role of government in the first place. Uh, I think this country has a certain skepticism about the role of government. Uh, at least uh, there is certainly a strong strand in, in U.S. political thinking which says small government is best and, and the, the less government does the better and the more you leave things to the, the private sector. Uh, I think there is a much stronger 
stronger tradition in Europe of expectation of government taking on certain tasks and being the guarantor uh, of certain uh, rights and 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 privileges for 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 the citizens. Uh, even uh, if that impinges on the ability of companies to do what they want. So I think that's, to me, that's the basic difference. Uh, Whenever I talk here about, uh, you know, we we recently had discussions about the issue of uh, illegal content uh, online. Uh, And uh, I was quite interested to hear many people in the United States saying, well, yes, we agree, illegal content online uh, is something that needs to be addressed. But of course, there's no role for government in that. Uh, and, you know, I'm afraid on the European perspective, we tend to think, well, if, if there's a law, if something is illegal to do in your garage, if it's illegal to print uh, a newsletter uh, telling you how to make a bomb, uh, then it should be illegal to do that online. Uh, and you need laws to, 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 to say that. Now, uh, so, so there is, I think, this fundamental difference about how far government should interfere in these matters and how much it should be left to companies. I think the United States on the privacy issue is probably one of the great international exceptions in not having a horizontal uh, overarching piece of privacy legislation. Uh, Most other countries in the world do. Uh, We've had one in Europe for a long time, going back to 1995. Uh, And we have seen uh, data privacy as a fundamental human right. Perhaps also our history uh, teaches us different lessons from uh, the involvement uh, of government in, in finding out about information about citizens. Uh, but I think there's a growing awareness here in the United States. I mean, I, I think, you know, there was just another leak uh, to breach today with Google. Uh, I think everything that has happened in the last uh, two years or so has, I think, also made Americans acutely aware that there are very serious privacy issues, data privacy issues for individuals uh, in the Internet world in which we now live. Now, these are manageable. I, I the, doesn't mean that this is a bad thing, but we do believe that you need rules. Uh, And I think there is even, I I detect, uh, a growing discussion here about whether the U.S. might not also need some some, some rules in this regard. Of course, you do have rules, but they tend to be sectoral rather than uh, an overarching horizontal uh, piece of of privacy legislation. And that's why we need the privacy shield, because you don't have that. Uh, We were able to reach uh, an adequacy uh, agreement with Japan recently because they have an overarching uh, privacy law which is actually rather similar to to our own. So, uh, yes, there are cultural differences, but uh, I I really believe that we are converging uh, because I think there's a growing awareness about privacy issues here in the United States. And frankly, uh, some of the terrorist attacks and other issues which we've had in Europe uh, have made us uh, uh, also aware of the security needs uh, for for our ability to protect ourselves uh, against uh, the abuse of the, the Internet for criminal or terrorist purposes. So that's a good segue into conversation of security cooperation instead of commercial cooperation. Uh, what's the state of U.S.-EU communication on, you mentioned that there's convergence in counterterrorism policy, and if you could speak a little bit about your experience in that realm. Well, I think we, we have uh, very good cooperation in this area. I mean, I have uh, in my delegation here uh, two police agents from Europol, the European police uh, agency based in The Hague. Uh, the In The Hague, there are, if memory serves me well, 14 or 15 liaison officers from different U.S. law enforcement agencies. 
uh, and we have really been able to step up uh, in, in recent years uh, our, our cooperation in this area, the sharing of information, the sharing of intelligence. And this has been hugely valuable both uh, to the Europeans in helping us uh, avert or prevent uh, potential attacks uh, and I think also very useful for, for the US side. Of course, on the EU side, uh, this is not a, a, an EU competence as such. This is an area where we very much are in uh, a strong competence for uh, member states uh, and for national governments. And one of the challenges we're facing uh, in Europe at the present time is how to get that, how to shift that balance a bit towards more European cooperation and more European joint action in these areas, while at the same time respecting uh, that national security and, of course, intelligence information is still very much uh, a prerogative of national sovereignty. So we're we're at, a, at, at, at I think we've made a lot of progress, but this is a, a delicate area for us to 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 move forward with. So there are, it seems, a hundred of things, hundreds of things on your agenda at any given time. What are the let's say top five priorities for your office right now? Top five, goodness, yes. That's, uh, a, that's an arbitrary. You can yes, I would. Well, no, I would. I would. I. I look. I would say that um, obviously the trade issue is uh, uh, very important. Uh, we understand that we have a, dis- a disagreement with this administration uh, on trade issues, and trying to get back to a more convergent view, uh, both of our bilateral trade relations, but also of our view of the global trading system is a, is a huge priority. I would say the issue of sanctions uh, is also hugely important, uh, both sanctions on Russia uh, where I think we, we share very much a sort of common analysis of the challenge and the threat posed by Russia, uh, but uh, we uh, are not completely lined up on the, the use of sanctions, and we've been working hard with Congress uh, on that issue. The issue of Iran sanctions is, of course, uh, as I said earlier, also hugely important. But here it also stems from a, a policy difference. We're not, we're not in the same place uh, uh, in relation to how we view uh, relations with Iran. But, but on those sanctions issues, I mean, the thing that, that concerns me uh, is that the, sanctions is a very important tool uh, and transatlantic unity on sanctions is, is very important. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned that we could see some divergence uh, and that this could have negative consequences for our future coordinated use of, of, of sanctions. We, the issue we've just talked about, data privacy uh, and cooperation in, in, in that area is uh, hugely uh, important. Uh, and the digital space generally, I would say, the, the, the development of the digital single market in Europe uh, is a very important development, but which will have implications for American companies uh, and how we how we deal with that. And uh, I would also say, of course, the the the, the general issue of, of foreign policy coordination, which we do uh, very extensively, uh, is is of course still you know a, a matter of vital co- cooperation. Whether we work in Africa, uh, the work we do on say Venezuela uh, uh, or uh, uh, Myanmar. Uh, these are all very important areas where we, we try to coordinate our position and make sure that we are able to use the joint leverage of, of an EU-US position uh, to achieve the best, the best results possible. So I want to I – we've talked about uh, the Iran sanctions uh, divergence, but I'm interested in the Russia sanctions issue uh, because one of the issues that 
both the EU and the United States have dealt with, but in very different ways, is the question of Russian influence within domestic activities. And of course, we're famously dealing with it in the context of of the 2016 election, but you guys are dealing with it in, uh, you know, the Latvian election, right? In in uh, in uh, Hungarian politics, in in a, in a bunch of different in a bunch of different member states, Russia has kind of gotten involved, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm interested in light of that what the tension is between sort of member states kind of going their own way on these issues and the sort of effort to have an EU-wide position. Well, of course, uh, at the end of the day, electoral systems are a matter of national competence, and, and it's up to each each country to uh, ensure the integrity of their own systems, uh, and uh, that's, that's a national responsibility. But I think there is a shared concern uh, across the European Union, across our member states, about the possibility of, of outside interference, uh, particularly uh, in the way that we have seen through social media and through through other other efforts, so we are we are very concerned, and we're as concerned as is the United States. I, I think where perhaps we we diverge is the need, the very quick reflex here to to go to sanctions as the sort of you know weapon almost of first resort in in this, and I think we 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 are concerned. That whereas on Crimea and eastern Ukraine, we had a very clear commitment to work together to coordinate our sanctions, to make sure that we each knew what the other was doing uh, and that we didn't have the law of unintended consequences. I fear that in recent times with the CATSA uh, legislation and now with new sanctions being considered uh, uh, in Congress uh, and possibly by the administration, there is a risk of insufficient coordination. We have we have one example, which is the uh, designation of Mr. Deripaska, a Soviet uh, Russian oligarch, uh, who, also, who has a company which owns uh, aluminium factories throughout Europe. Uh, the consequence of that designation is potentially the shutting down of those factories if we can't find a satisfactory solution. And this could have uh, serious uh, difficulties for you know, as many as 16,000 jobs in Europe. Uh, and this was, frankly, a lack of prior consultation between us, which led to this situation. So I think I think that's where we need to to uh, l- take a second look uh, and not have a situation. You know, President Putin, I think, was very surprised by the degree of transatlantic unity on sanctions related to Ukraine. Uh, it would be a shame if now, through a lack of coordination, we actually produced uh, a, a divergence uh, in, in, in transatlantic approaches to sanctions. So I think that's the, the main difference, uh, is that I don't think there is yet a, a view in, in, in Europe that the answer to some of these issues of interference and of messaging uh, at election time, that sanctions are necessarily the best way forward. Relatedly, uh, in some of the EU member states, I'm thinking particularly of Hungary and Poland, there has been... Uh, you know, a significant problem of, I don't know quite what to call it, but sort of democratic deconsolidation that the EU has requirements that member states be functioning democracies, but it is only a recent issue that the question of how to enforce those requirements has ever really arisen in a meaningful way at a time that the United States is spending a lot of time wondering about sort of authoritarian tendencies within our own domestic politics. I'm, I, I'm 
interested for your thoughts in in sort of the rise of not merely authoritarian movements uh, within the EU, but authoritarian governing parties that materially change the democratic cultures of the member state countries? I think this is a, a hugely important issue, and, and I will not hide from you, it's, it's a difficult issue. Uh, we do have a provision in our treaties, Article 7, which does allow us to address the issue of insufficient respect for the rule of law or for, for basic democratic principles. Uh, this is the article which is being used to address the issue in Poland of the judicial reform, where we feel uh, the independence of the judiciary is potentially being uh, undermined. But it's 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 new territory for us to be as you as you rightly say. I mean, I think we have always seen the European Union as a driving force for the spread of democracy. Uh, we helped to bring Greece in after the the Colonel's regime. We brought in Greece, Spain and Portugal after the dictatorships of Franco and Salazar. And of course, most famously, we enlarged to then 10 countries of Central Europe in 2004 who'd previously been under uh, Soviet uh, domination in one form or another, and we've since taken in Bulgaria, Romania, uh, and Croatia, all of whom were also a part of, of that previous uh, distorted uh, totalitarian communist uh, structure. Uh, and the, the implication was that we were all moving forward towards a, a, a vision of, uh, broadly speaking, sort of Western European liberal, liberal democracy, the rule of law, human rights, fundamental principles. And these are enshrined in our treaties. And as you rightly say, to join the European Union, you had to sign up to those uh, principles. What happens if after countries join, they then uh, feel the need uh, to diverge? Uh, and how do we then deal with it? And this is what we're coping with. We have, of course, legal instruments. So the Commission has a role to play. Uh, there is a decision-making uh, mechanism. But I think uh, beyond the legalities, the, the, the real issue is how do we win the battle of public opinion? And how do we avoid that it appears that this is some kind of external pressure uh, on countries uh, with then an appeal to nationalistic tendencies to say, well, how dare uh, Brussels uh, tell us that our system uh, doesn't work properly or is not up to democratic standards? That's for us to decide. What are the limits of national sovereignty in the context of membership of the European Union? This is, you know, it's a, it's a complex issue. But I, I think, frankly, if the Union is not a community of values, we are nothing. Uh, and I think our fundamental principles of democracy, the rule of law, human rights, freedom of expression, independence of the judiciary, uh, these are fundamental principles. And I think uh, there is a role for, for the European collective to, to defend these. Now, of course, there will always be a debate as to at what point has uh, a change in a system? Is it justified? Is it legitimate? Because because in Poland they say, well, the previous system didn't work. We think we need a new system. Uh, but we have some objective factors. We have the Venice Commission of the of the OSCE. We have other elements who can help us uh, make judgments about whether. Uh, reforms meet with the criteria of, of, of basic principles of democratic and rule of law governance. Uh, but this is not going to be an easy discussion. And uh, I, I think it is a, a challenging moment for the European Union. And personally, I think it's one of the most difficult challenges we, we perhaps uh, have faced. But uh, we can't run away from it. And we're going to have to address it. In the long run, is there a place in the European Union for Hungary under under a sort of frankly nationalistic and non you know not obviously democratic Fidesz or or you know Poland under under the Kaczynski regime 
I think that the fundamental principles upon which the European Union is founded are democracy, rule of law, respect for human rights, the European Convention on Human Rights, and any government which does not respect those principles, in my view, is going to have great difficulties working with the, the European Union. Now, how you make that judgment, and you know, you have qualified two, two governments uh, uh, in, in one way, they might qualify themselves differently. And this is, uh, as, as you know, this is not a science in, in making these judgments. But I think that's a task which falls to the Commission in the first instance, uh, as the sort of executive, to, to, to make these judgments about whether changes made in, in a country's governance structure are compatible with the treaties and the European Convention on Human Rights and, and our basic principles. And at the end of the day, of course, it's up to other member states. And of course, the, the difficulty, as you know, of Article 7 is that you require unanimity uh, of all the countries except the country concerned. But if you happen to have two countries which are concerned, uh, that then gets rather they complicated. They can veto each other. But I, I, I think uh, the, the point I would, I would make, and I think it's a very important point, is that at the end of the day, this is not just about legalities. It is about fundamental principles. Uh, and I, I think the, the rest of the European Union is not going to be content if there were to be, and I use that in the conditional sense, if there were to be a, a government which was no longer respecting uh, democratic principles and, 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 and the rule of law. And I, I think then, uh, I think it's, it, you know, it, it's not for nothing that we have these principles underlining the basic concept of, of the European Union. And these are principles which have to be defended. I hope you don't mind if I ask one last question that's, that's slightly more personal, but as you were speaking about the importance of this particular issue, it strikes me that one of the fundamental um, tensions is identity. Um, and I think that the EU deals with issues of national identity and cultural identity in a way that's unique globally. You're Irish and, you know, in pending Brexit negotiations about the Irish border, I'm sure complicate lots of things for your nation as a segment of the EU. And how is your identity as, as an Irish person, but also a representative of the super government? Um, how, how does that affect your work or how do you feel about that? Well, I, I think the issue of identity is, of course, important, but I, I've, I've never seen any tension between, you know, my nationality uh, uh, and, and my work at European level. Uh, I, I think identity is multilayered. You, you say I'm Irish. Yes, I am Irish. But if you know anything about Ireland, you'll know the really important question is, where do you come from in Ireland? Yeah. Uh, and I come from Dublin, which is clearly, you know, a, a much more superior part of Ireland than other parts of Ireland. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and therefore, I, my first identity is I'm a Dubliner, then I'm Irish, then I'm European. And I don't see any tension between these two things. My sense of Europeanness and my sense of the need for Europe in the 21st century to integrate uh, in order to deliver better outcomes for our citizens and to be better able to influence the, the, the global environment is for me self-evident, but it doesn't come at the cost of my own, my own national identity. I don't feel mm -hmm. less Irish uh, because I'm also European. Uh, and I don't think I think we are not seeking you say a pluribus unum here in the United States. You, 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 you wanted to build a nation out of people of very diverse backgrounds. But paradoxically, I find here in America, people are excessively proud of their their national roots. When I meet Americans, uh, they'll say, where are you from? And you'll say, I'm Irish. And they say, oh, I'm Irish. 
And I look at them and I say, no, you're not. You're American. They say, well, my grandfather came from Ireland. But it's interesting that they want, in addition to their American nationality, they want that Irish or, or German or, or Mexican or Puerto Rican origin as an additional dimension. What we are doing in Europe is we're not suppressing our national identity. We're just building a new layer of, common, of, of commonality, which is our Europeanness. But when you travel to Portugal, uh, it's Portugal. When you travel to Latvia, it's Latvia. Uh, we're not homogenizing. We are not. Our countries are extremely proud of their national traditions, their history, their language, their culture, their cuisine, their music. Uh, and these are things to be celebrated. We're not, we don't need to blend all of this into some homogenous uh, uh, European identity. Uh, but we can also say that the Latvian and the Portuguese and the Irish and the German can sit down and say, yes, we're also European and we share this continent and we share a certain history and we share certain traditions and we share certain values uh, which are going to guide us in, in building the future for our countries, for our children, and, and for our continent. And to me, that's the joy of this job. And I've never, uh, to, to have worked in this, in this field for the last 40 years has been one of the greatest privileges, because I think what we've achieved in the European Union uh, in, in, the, in the last uh, 60, 70 years is, is truly remarkable truly remarkable. Uh, it's a fragile construction, which is always vulnerable. Uh, but I, for one, will be uh, constantly working to defend it and to build on it for the future uh, in a way that enables us to revel in our national uh, cultural identity and at the same time our shared European destiny. Thank you very much for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Thank you, Ambassador. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you both very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Ambassador O'Sullivan for coming on the podcast and to the EU delegation for arranging it. If you haven't done it yet, please, please, please give us a rating and a review wherever you found us and share us with your friends and followers on Twitter and Facebook and whatever social media sites you use. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our audio engineer this week was Matt Kahn, and our music is, as ever, performed by the one, the only, the in Washington, D.C. still, Sophia Yan. And until next time, thanks for listening.